Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management. And I'm uh, Charlotte Wells G. Gregorio. I'm with Ohio State, and I'm going to be talking about um, depression and suicidal ideation today. So the goal is um, that everyone here will be able to do uh, depression, um, not just screening, but how do you actually diagnose um, depression before you would prescribe an antidepressant. And um, then we'll also talk about some basics of suicide risk assessment. So these are two really common issues that um, palliative practitioners are often asking me about. So. Um, we're going to uh, learn to distinguish today between anticipatory grief and depression. Um, anticipatory grief, you can also think of that as demoralization. It's a kind of hot topic in, in palliative care now. So when I'm talking about anticipatory grief, you could also just think about demoralization. We'll have another talk, a separate talk about uh, managing demoralization. Um, we're going to talk about some psychotherapeutic treatments for depression, um, just so you have an awareness of what those are. And then I think I, uh, Amber may be talking with you about um, some of the pharmacologic treatments for depression. And then we'll talk about some of the risk and protective factors for suicide risk management. Um, we're using cancer as an example today, but you can really fit in a lot of other chronic or serious illnesses. Um, I'm just using that as an example because our clinic fo focuses on um, palliative care in the outpatient setting with cancer patients. Um, so what you see here is um, <clears throat> a circle representing some of the most uh, challenging points uh, along the cancer trajectory for patients. So definitely at diagnosis is a high distress time. Uh, when people finish treatment, there's a period of um, real uncertainty and anxiety because when they're involved with treatment, it feels like they're doing something about their disease. But once that ends, um, you have a whole new set of concerns or problems like how do I change my behavior? Um, to prevent recurrence and then fears of recurrence become an important issue. Also return to work and school. Um, disease recurrence and disease progression, those are other stressful times for patients, and then uh, terminal disease. Let's talk a little bit about some of the <clears throat> losses experienced with cancer. So. Um, what are some of the physical losses that a person might experience with cancer? Weight loss. Mm -hmm. Weight loss. What else? What kind of physical challenges are presented with cancer? Weakness. Mm -hmm. Weight loss, weakness, especially in the last month of life, weakness is a really significant challenge. Um, just being able to sit and stand and walk. The hair loss. Uh -huh. Yep, hair loss, definitely. Hair loss, there can be um, sleep issues um, that come along with that, appetite changes. Um, what about psychologically? What kind of losses are experienced with cancer that come to mind? Depression. Depression. Uh-huh. Yeah, you could experience uh, depression, um, loss of a sense of joy, and in, in that case, joy or pleasure in things. <clears throat> yeah, loss of control, loss of a sense of predictability about the future, maybe some time changes too, like no longer planning out five or ten years in advance, just planning you know, for the next day sometimes, and then three months, and then uh, maybe six months. Yeah, and social changes, what kind of social changes have you seen? Isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can be isolation. What other kind of practical challenges? Dependence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, struggling with dependent, having to depend on other people can be really hard, especially in an individualistic uh, culture. 
Um, yeah, we might see some uh, with the practical problems, transportation difficulties, difficulty obtaining medications, uh, some difficulties with living situation if they have to move into somebody else's um, house as they're getting um, treatment for support, um, spiritual changes or losses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, faith, why me, sense of meaning or purpose sometimes is lost, especially if they have to quit working or uh, going to school. <clears throat> and then uh, you had mentioned the loss of sense of control. So there's a multitude of losses that patients can experience um, with cancer. In terms of response to loss, um, the concept covering that that domain is anticipatory grief. And with anticipatory grief, we're not just talking about losses in the present, but losses they may have experienced in the past related to their disease. And then anticipatory grief also encompasses loss of um, uh, loss of a determined future, plans for the future, feeling like they can't plan for the future. So um, some of the things that might be experienced with anticipatory grief, so periods of sadness or tearfulness, feelings of emptiness and loss, and working, you might hear this a lot, working to establish a, a new normal. Um, continue, they may have continued interest in pleasurable activities, so they still um, get joy out of the things that they're doing, which is a little bit uh, different than depression. Um, they still maintain a sense of um, self-worth, even though that might be challenged by their disease. Um, and there can be some concentration issues just if they're preoccupied with um, the losses they're experiencing. And, um, but along with this, there can oftentimes be enhanced empathy. So people might tell you that they're watching television and they're having periods of crying because they really feel what it is that other people are um, experiencing with, with diseases or other challenges. So, um, In terms of distinguishing anticipatory grief and depression, these are some things that you can look for as you're trying to d make that determination. So with anticipatory grief, there's more good days and bad days, whereas with depression, there's more per a persistent dysphoria or sadness. So a good question is, um, have you been feeling depressed or down most days, nearly every day? So uh, when you see that it's um, you know several days per week that they're just feeling down and can't experience joy or pleasure, that would be more consistent with depression. Um, with anticipatory grief, they may have some specific guilt. They may talk about, I feel really bad because I can't clean the house or do things for my family. I'm frequently making plans and having to cancel or change those. But with depression, a person may feel guilty about a lot of different things. I feel guilty that I can't care for my children, that I can't take care of the house, that I've had to reduce my hours at work. I feel guilty about just existing as a human being. I'm not doing my part. They may talk about feelings of, of burden. Um, so it's a lot heavier in terms of um, challenges to self-esteem. Um, with anticipatory grief, they may, may have uh, hope that things will uh, improve or change, whereas with depression, they might have more of a sense of hopelessness about the future. And then um, with anticipatory grief, they're usually interacting with people and finding that helpful, enjoying um, time with friends and family. But with depression, you might start to see some social withdrawal. They just don't have the energy to be with other people. Um, don't, they're not deriving pleasure from it. Um, and then with anticipatory grief, there's not really an active desire for early death, but with depression, that's something to kind of listen for when people are talking about, I wish I hadn't done this treatment, I wish it were all over, um, I'm thinking about stopping, um, stopping treatment, why am I doing this? Um, so there can be passive, passive and active suicidal ideation. In terms of assessing depression, there's been some discussion of just using single a single item. Um, a single item is a good way to um, 
screen for depression, um, but it has its limitations. So um, if you're asking someone, are they depressed and they're an older adult, they're less likely to say that they're depressed. Um, men are less likely also to report depression. They may respond yes to uh, feeling, feeling sad or down more so than feeling depressed. Uh, blue collar workers are also less likely to answer yes to this question. Um, so with this, it's uh, you have 55% sensitivity and 74% specific specificity just with this question. So you're really going to uh, miss quite a few people who may actually be depressed. Um, again, I think we talked about this with anxiety. So sticking with the person's choice of words. So if they're using uh, sadness, loss of interest, or pleasure. Uh, feeling down, um, try to stick with their language because sometimes people just have a um, kind of depression is stigmatized so that you may not get a, enough information to make a diagnosis just using the term depression. Um, and one thing to look out for, um, sometimes with children but also uh, men, is the uh, sadness or feeling down may get expressed as irritability, especially if you have a couple that you're talking to and the wife says, wow, it's really irritable or more easily annoyed. That uh, can be more of a cardinal sign of depression in men. These are the DSM-5 uh, criteria <laughs> for depression. And looking at these as a, um, where might you run into problems when you have a person, say, with advanced cancer or on active treatment for cancer, um, where might this get confusing in terms of de uh, diagnosing depression? Weight loss, insomnia, fatigue, mm -hmm. the physical symptoms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so all the neurovegetative symptoms. So. Um, Pretty much um, for most cancer patients, I'd say like 80% of them, there's going to be some uh, weight loss or gain or change in appetite, insomnia or hypersomnia, fatigue or loss of energy. You also might see some concentration difficulties just related to chemotherapy or pain or other symptoms. So, so we could end up with a lot of false positives just using these criteria, especially with patients with advanced disease. So. There's um, a workaround, and that's called the Endicott substitution criteria. So what I'll typically do in diagnosing depression with patients with advanced disease is use all the typical criteria, but then have these add-on Endicott substitution criteria. And we've done some studies at Ohio State that suggest that um, the typical diagnostic strategy for advanced cancer patients, the reliability of that is very poor, but when you use the Endicott criteria, substitution criteria, um, the reliability is like uh, 0.80. Um, so I tend to uh, stick with these criteria. So someone may meet criteria just based on the first two, either to depressed or feeling down in anhedonia, and then they may have a variety of neurovegetative symptoms, and I'm still questioning, well, is that disease related? Um, but then if they um, have a lot of these other things like social withdrawal, um, others making comments um, that they seem depressed, like family members noticing that, <clears throat> feelings of pessimism or hope hopelessness, and feeling disconnected or emotionally numb, I'll usually say, have you just been feeling blah about things? Neither happy nor sad, just kind of, you know, you're not experiencing any, any emotion, kind of numb about things. Um, so the, those are things that you can look for to just support your diagnosis of depression. 40 to 50% um, of people living with cancer will experience normal stress and coping responses. And 50 to 60% will experience a diagnosable psychological disorder, usually adjustment, um, some type of adjustment disorder. But then 25 to 77% of patients um, will experience depression. Um, the increasing rates you see are that usually studies done with patients with advanced disease or poor symptom control. 
I think studies that report about 77% are probably doing a lot of false positive diagnosis just using the standard DSM-5 criteria. When you use the Endicott criteria, it's probably more like 50 or 60% of patients with advanced disease will experience some depression. Um, so pretty high rates among the palliative care population. Before you diagnose, there's a couple things to rule out. There's actually a whole huge list of things to rule out, but I picked out um, probably the most common things I see um, where things can go wrong. So bipolar disorder, so if a, a person has a history of manic episodes and then we give them a couple antidepressants, we can set off a, a bipolar episode. So that's something to always um, consider or ask. Um, alcohol or cocaine abuse, so both of those can really look like depression, so um, especially when they're coming down from uh, cocaine, they can look very depressed. Um, medical factors such as hypothyroid and anemia, uh, I don't know how many times um, someone has come in just feeling so incredibly fatigued and describing it as depression when it's really anemia and they get a transfusion and they come back and they're really much better. So um, taking care of that. And then uh, blood pressure medications and then some of the treatments, um, especially for melanoma like interferon and IL-2. Also, I have found in the past um, 12 years working in palliative care that before I get hung up on a depression diagnosis, I really want to make sure that the person's uh, pain is well controlled or well managed, um, that their financial distress is also being addressed, and fatigue, that we're doing what we can to address fatigue, including activity, um, pacing, sometimes just addressing those three things, especially with patients with advanced disease, will um, take care of the depression or improve the depressive symptoms. So, and why why do we treat uh, depression? Um, one, because it's important in and of itself, but also because it has uh, ramifications for survival in cancer. So across non-small non cell lung cancer, uh, head and neck cancer patients, uh, patients that are um, post bone marrow transplant, and then those with metastatic breast cancer, depression has been as associated with shorter survival. Um, and at least two meta-analysis, 25 studies indicate that the mortality rates are 25% higher with patients with depressive symptoms and then 39% higher with those diagnosed with depression. So it's really important, an important area of treatment, not just for um, improving quality of life, but also improving quantity of life. Unfortunately, depression is really one of those undertreated symptoms. Like we think that we think of pain as being an undertreated symptom, depression is much, <laughs> much worse in terms of like screening and uh, assessment for depression. So less than ten percent receive services at most. Uh, uh, cancer institutions, one-third of um, the depressed are prescribed an antidepressant, oftentimes at not even a therapeutic, um, therapeutic dose or taking it uh, for long enough, and then less than 7% uh, are referred for psychological treatment or mental health services, um, whereas combined, combined treatment is usually the best option. And then 15% receive potentially effective evidence-based treatment for major depression. And I see that a lot when people are coming in for, for the community and they're describing uh, what type of services they're getting. Sometimes it's just a venting type of uh, therapy that really is not very helpful and so they feel kind of hopeless about um, whether their depression is going to improve. Some of the myths that um, result in undertreatment, so um, all people with cancer are depressed, which we talked about is certainly not true, even though a high percentage may be depressed. Um, depression in a person with cancer is normal. You hear people say, well, I would be depressed too, and um, so that doesn't lead towards any um, 
improvements or referrals. Treatments are not helpful, so not having a good understanding of what's available or effective. I can't afford treatment, so I think that's definitely changed with mental health parity. Um, so um, most insurers will cover treatment uh, for depression. And then provider uncertainty, so just not um, knowing what services are available or how to access those services. And access to services is a, a definite problem. This is what we are using currently um, in the James um, to screen for depression. Um, there's an item feeling, I think, feeling depressed or down. And if a person reports um, a two or higher on that item, there's a 90% chance that they'll meet criteria for depression. So if you happen to be looking at these in, in clinic and you notice the two or above, it would be worthwhile to then do an assessment for depression with them. I'm gonna move into talking about some empirically based treatments for depression. Um, so, um, there's a difference between psychotherapy and supportive counseling. Um, so with supportive counseling, the person would be just assessing stressors. There might be some uh, patient venting going on. Um, there's discussing some coping strategies or giving advice and providing support or participating in support group. There's pretty limited evidence that supportive psychotherapy, even though it may feel good and the person may leave the session and say, oh, I feel relieved, that it actually does anything for depression or anxiety. So um, the difference with psychotherapy is um, it's, empiric it's based on empirically supported strategies. Um, requires the patient to engage in practice. So the person's leaving the session with some idea of things that they can work on or, or change between this session and the next session. And it involves um, kind of analysis or breaking down and synthesis or putting back together um, targeted changes in thought, thoughts and behavior. So there's a plan from the very beginning about the things that you might need to work on to improve the person's depression. Three of the treatments that work are cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy. We'll spend the most time on cognitive behavioral therapy because that's probably the one that you've heard the, heard the most about. Um, so this is kind of the framework for cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, we usually talk about it as um, you're just working on thoughts and behaviors, but you're also working on um, physical aspects of depression, emotions, um, and then some of the social aspects of depression. So with physical, trying to help the person to have a healthier diet, to engage in some exercise, um, and if present, reducing um, alcohol or drug use as a coping strategy. And with emotions, sometimes just teaching people to identify what it is that they're feeling, why they're reacting the way um, that they're reacting. Um, and then recognizing, because um, I think in our culture there's a tendency to want to get rid of like negative emotion, like, oh, I'm feeling depressed. <laughs> or, oh, I'm taking an antidepressant, but I had a day of sadness. Is that normal? I shouldn't feel, <laughs> I shouldn't feel sad or feeling anxious. Oh, I shouldn't feel anxious. Um, so, or ang anger too, like is another emotion that people are really, um, worried about or want to just get rid of. So recognizing that emotions can be useful and provide useful information, usually about needing to change direction or course and something that's going on in the person's life. Um, noting triggers for um, when they're feeling those ways or feeling more negative emotions. And also noting triggers for positive emotions, what makes them feel, feel better. Um, deciding that one has some control over emotional responses so things don't just happen to you and then you feel 
terrible. So there's a whole thing called your brain inter <laughs> interceding between things that happen and then your emotional responses. Um, increasing opportunities for positive emotional experiences. People can get so caught up in the uh, cancer experience or outside of that a work experience and then that kind of takes over their lives or takes over their thinking and so they're not spending enough time doing things that bring them joy or pleasure so trying to reincorporate some of those um, activities behavior um, changes in behavior by activity scheduling so with depression, people will say, well, I really don't feel motivated. I don't feel like doing anything. So um, uh, helping them to understand that motivation often follows behavior. So don't wait until you're motivated to do something to do it because uh, you might be waiting forever if you're depressed. So actually engaging and then determining how you feel after engaging in that behavior. Um, teaching problem-solving skills versus avoidance, and then um, working on self-care as a way to develop um, self-respect and uh, feelings of worth, worth, worthiness. From a cognitive perspective, um, this is um, how you operate would operate as a therapist. Like, there's a book by Epictetus and. Um, written thousands of years ago and I always say to people if if everyone would read that they probably wouldn't need antidepressants or psychotherapy because I think he covers everything that's in CBT but um, he was the first to say men feel disturbed not by things but the views they take take of those things and then Shakespeare added to that there exists nothing either good or bad but think thinking makes it so that kind of goes along with the cognitive perspective. So one of the things that we're doing in uh, cognitive therapy is um, helping people to understand that between the event, um, there's a belief or interpretation, and then that affects how we how we feel. So um, if someone arrives late, or or um, no, let's say somebody cuts you off. This is a the best example, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you think, oh, like, <laughs> what is that person doing? They're going to kill me and everyone around, you know, around them, they're not paying attention. But if you think, oh, someone cut me off in traffic, maybe they have an emergency or they're going to the hospital, like, um, and they need to get there quickly. It's not about me. It's about, you know, them. Um, that's always a good strategy. It's not about, <laughs> this is not about me. This is what's going on uh, with the person right now. Um, it totally changes how you uh, feel about events whenever you're able to make an uh, interpretive change like that. So part of therapy is helping people to think about where they're getting stuck in their thoughts. Um, there's a cognitive triad of depression. So if you've ever um, experienced depression or been around a person who's experiencing depression, they often will have a lot of negative um, thoughts and beliefs. Um, so they're usually three areas. So negative beliefs about themselves, negative beliefs about the world, and then negative beliefs about the future. And you could see how after a while, hearing all of that would really create a lot of strain on interpersonal relationships. Like you would get kind of uh, worn out from being around someone who's depressed and that's what contributes to a lot of the social withdrawal that you see. Um, people aren't deriving pleasure from being around you when you're depressed and you're not deriving pleasure. So working with them on um, those beliefs and those three areas can be helpful. We also work on um, what we call cognitive distortions, and we all can uh, think in these ways, but when a person is depressed, they tend to think more frequently um, in these ways. So there's a list of like um, probably, I think, 10 different cognitive uh, distortions. So some of the more common would be all or nothing thinking, which is really like what they call black and white thinking. So thinking is dualistic. So I'm either a total failure, or I'm a success, or um, I'm going to get a cure, or just be in palliative, <laughs> palliative care. I'm going to take this pain medicine, and I'm going to have no pain after taking the medication. So helping people to think more on a continuum about most things. More recently, I was working with a woman on um, 
she had thoughts about, um, and I've actually worked with several people on the same issue, that she was damaged goods after having cancer and just the impact on her uh, feelings of attractiveness. And so in her world, you're either attractive or not attractive. So developing a continuum of what does this mean? What is the concept of attractiveness? Um, and challenging some of those thoughts. Um, there's also should statements, and any time you catch yourself saying should to yourself, um, how do you end up feeling if you should have done something but you didn't? What's your emotional reaction? Guilty. Yeah, you feel guilty or um, blaming yourself for not doing something. And what about if you say, uh, for example, like, oh, my husband should have folded the clothes. How am I going to feel? <laughs> about that if you didn't do that. Anger. Yeah, anger, frustration, blaming someone else. So instead of whenever you catch yourself having should thoughts, trying to adjust those to, well, it's my preference if, you know, it would have been my preference to finish this, you know, yesterday, or it would have been my preference if the clothes had been folded. And that creates a different, like, emotional feeling, like more of a sense of loss versus blame and anger. Social and practical changes that come along with, um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, so helping a person adjust to role changes that they might be making, reestablishing a sense of meaning or purpose, and enhancing support. So a lot of times with a diagnosis of serious illness, people will um, talk with you about, wow, this person was really there for me, but this person was not, and I'm kind of surprised by that. So helping them reevaluate who, who within their um, support system is available, decreasing uh, conflictual supports and increasing supportive interactions with people. Um, the next type of therapy that's been shown to be effective for depression is interpersonal therapy. Some of the components are really similar to CBT, but it really does have a focus on social relationships and um, changing those even through the context of um, the therapeutic relationship. So how is the person interacting with the therapist? Your goals, again, are symptom redu reduction or resolution, improved interpersonal functioning, and increased social support in that case. You're really focused on four problem areas. So you're usually focused on uh, helping the person with grief or loss, interpersonal disputes that they might be experiencing, uh, role transitions, um, which are common with cancer, and interpersonal sensitivity. So the last one is really helping the person to uh, work on ineffective like interpersonal patterns that they might have that frequently cause conflict or just don't enable them to get their goals met. You may be helping them with assertiveness skills, um, being more effective and improving their social support network. And then the final type of um, therapy that um, has probably received more attention in the past 10 years, even though it was developed, I think, in the early like 1980s, um, is acceptance and commitment therapy. I find this really valuable with patients with uh, advanced disease or within the palliative care context. Um, it's not so much about reducing or getting rid of symptoms, which we might struggle with with advanced disease, like pain, um, depression, anxiety. It's more helping that person to accept where they are with those things, um, helping them to get treatment so they're reducing them, but then helping them to have um, a life that's meaningful and focused on their values, committing to action um, despite having those symptoms. So rather than the person experiencing um, some moderate pain and staying on the couch all day because they have the moderate pain, um, taking that pain with them, still engaging in things that are meaningful so that they have a better quality of life. Um, it also incorporates some mindfulness, so helping people to be in the, the present moment instead of focused on the future or the past. Um, I'm going to move now to talking uh, briefly about suicidal ideation um, that often comes along with cancer. 
So the incidence of uh, suicide doubles with the diagnosis of uh, cancer that's uh, higher than a lot of other illness populations. Um, if you're hearing in your um, interactions with patients these different things, it's really important because people won't often come out and say, I'm feeling suicidal, I'm gonna kill myself. Sometimes they will, that's more rare. But they'll say these other things, and when you hear these, I want you to really pay attention um, to what's going on with them. So the, they may talk about a sense of hopelessness with their disease, uh, fear of um, suffering, especially a fear of burdening their families um, or feeling isolated. And sometimes they ha might have a real rigid way of dealing with things and um, because they can't do what they've always done to kind of cope with situations. Like, oh, I can't um, take care of the crops this fall because I'm too sick, so I'm a burden to my family. I'm never gonna be able to um, produce or change anything in my life. It's slacking in meaning or purpose. You hear those things and um, that's kind of the person's like cry for, cry for help without saying they're suicidal. They're probably at higher risk. Um, there's 19, when we've looked at our um, outpatient population, 19% will express suicidal ideation, say they, that they at least have thoughts of wanting things to uh, be over. Four, only 4% 4 will actually have a plan, and then 2% with intent. So not a huge, um, huge number of patients. 13% um, of those will have made a past attempt, which increases the, uh, the risk for that group. I think this is a fascinating table because we frequently hear about suicide among the uh, veteran population, but look at the numbers here. So this is like some uh, risk ratios. So among uh, people within the first year of uh, cancer diagnosis, you have 3.9% uh, increased risk of uh, suicide. And then when you look at um, these particular diagnoses, lung or uh, bronchial cancers, uh, stomach, uh, oral cavity and pharynx or head and neck cancers, they're much higher than um, even uh, veterans diagnosed with mental disorders. So it's a real problem that often gets overlooked um, with cancer patients. Similar to the undertreatment of depression uh, in terms of suicide risk management, how many here have had any training in terms of managing suicide risk? Yeah, so what was that? I, um, I have a master's in clinical counseling from Ashland, and so okay. I trained in, in that program. So. Yeah, okay, fantastic. And I also worked in the ER. Okay. <laughs> I see a lot of people that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so you've had some opportunities or experiences, which are unusual even for counseling or mental health professionals to have uh, any substantial training, which is surprising in suicide risk management. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 45% of those dying uh, by suicide saw a primary care physician uh, within the month before their uh, suicide and only 20% saw a mental health professional. So um, especially if you're in primary care practice, it's, it's important to understand uh, risk management. Um, only 35 to 50% of primary care providers have any training in suicide risk management. And fascinating to me that even fewer mental health providers have training in suicide risk management. You may just think that that's a given that you would uh, have that. It's, a, it's higher within psychiatry, but among counselors, social workers, psychologists, very few have uh, training, unless they've worked in the emergency department or other, another setting. About 50% uh, of psychiatrists, so one out of every two psychiatrists will experience a suicide, and 20 to 30% of psychologists and social workers will experience a suicide. Um, I think since I've been here, I've experienced about three, three suicides, so um, it's really prevalent among the palliative care uh, population. Um, so the greatest risk is with not having training is patient death. But the additional risk is if, um, if you really 
don't understand what you're doing or how to manage all the circumstances that come together for suicide is you could um, have a patient that becomes disillusioned with the system and feels like they're not going to get adequate help when they're really um, crying for help in all, all these different ways. So the Surgeon General um, put out a report in 1999, a call to prevent suicide, that really talks about uh, the capacity to do a a one-to-one assessment. Um, So you're looking to uh, do an interview regarding current suicidal desire, ideation, uh, their capability, intent, their reasons for wanting to die, reasons for wanting to live, Um, and especially suicide attempt plans, past attempts, and protective factors. Um, This interview that you would do with the patient would lead to a risk stratification. So like, are they in a low, moderate, or high risk um, category? And um, based on that, use risk mitigation strategies. Um, And then we'll talk a little bit about collaborative risk management, what that looks like. Um, and including all of those things in your assessment. Um, So these are the key skills um, that we would want to develop. I think most of us learn to assess for suicidal ideation, uh, plan and intent, but we also want to look at risk and protective factors, um, do the risk stratification, involve family members or significant others if you're hearing uh, patients talk about suicide, establish and document your plan, and then make sure that they're connected with resources and not a resource three months from now, <laughs> like which is most often the case. So really working to try to get someone in within the next um, few days or week if someone is really, if you're really concerned about suicide, if they're, if they're really high risk, getting them in the same day for an evaluation and, and safety. So these are some questions you can um, ask. So with ideation, given everything you're experiencing, have you thoughts have had thoughts of wanting to end your life? I usually won't even use the term uh, suicide because that can throw people off. They may, you know, it may be so stigmatized that they deny it. But they'll often respond to this question about wanting to end their life um, because they've thought about their lives uh, oftentimes being over related to um, advanced disease. Have you thought specifically about how you would do this? What other ways have you thought about? So not just leaving it at that, have you thought about other ways that, you know, and keep asking until they run out of um, things they might have planned? Do you think you would do this? And what is the likelihood that you would carry this out, zero to 10? When do you think you might do this? And then have you made a previous attempt and getting details of that? How many pills did you take? Did you call or write a uh, note? Were you using alcohol or drugs? Were there, was there something that triggered this? What stopped you? How were you found? So getting as many details as you can. Um, two essential predictors are history of multiple attempts and having a resolve or plan or preparation versus just a desire. I think sometimes there are uh, populations of patients that make frequent attempts, and because they make this frequent attempts, they say, oh, you know, they're not serious about this, but those are exactly the people who eventually make a, a serious and final, final attempt. So is suicidal ideation sufficient? No, because 78% of 76 patients completing suicide had denied suicidal ideation at their last human contact prior to death. So just by asking that, you could miss it. So paying attention to these other uh, factors. These are the general risk factors um, for suicide. So uh, men more likely, especially over the age of 65 and especially over uh, the age of 80 where we might see some uh, cognitive declines. Depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar, borderline, so any of your impulse control disorders. Um, We underestimate sometimes severe anxiety or panic, but that is equivalent or sometimes some studies suggest that there are higher rates of suicide for patients with um, high levels of anxiety, more so than depression. So um, substance abuse, difficulties accessing uh, mental health care, 
um, being unmarried, LGBT status, unemployment or financial concerns, um, and the list goes on. But you can see how our patients would be especially at risk because they are experiencing a lot of these um, risks. These are some illness-specific risk factors. So first year after diagnosis, certain types of cancer, prostate, lung, pancreatic, stomach, liver, esophageal, head and neck. So some of our poor prognosis uh, cancers, more advanced disease, uncontrolled symptoms, uncontrolled pain is a huge, huge risk factor. Uh, physical impairment. So mobility changes, hearing incontinence, swallowing, eating frequent hospitalizations, and then certain treatments or having limited treatment options and feeling hopeless about that. On a more positive note, there are protective, um, protective factors. So um, having reasons for living. So whenever you hear, oh, I would never do that to my kids or that's against my religion, that is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> fresh air if they feel a sense of meaning or purpose in what they're doing. Um, Marriage is a protective factor, except in situations of high conflict or violence. So just having someone around um, may not be protective. Um, having children in the home, except for postpartum, um, teen pregnancy and uh, financial strain. Supportive social networks. Therapeutic contact or engagement. So are they seeing someone and they feel connected with that person? Uh, psychotropic meds, and then having strong family attachments. So some of the um, basics, like if you are uh, working with someone who might be suicidal, stay calm because <laughs> uh, they'll pick up on your level of energy. Stay with the patient or continue talking with them by telephone, so trying to keep them on the phone or um, to the degree possible, if you have to step out of the room, say in the outpatient setting, um, trying to uh, you know, enlist security or someone else to come on board and help or the nurse manager to come on board, then step back in the room um, to be with the patient. There are all kinds of things in our outpatient settings that um, could be harmful, like uh, window blind shades and the um, pulls on those. Um, yeah, there were cords, like cords to lamps and things that they could use. So not stepping outside of the room and just leaving the uh, person alone. Um, assessing for plan and method, trying to remove the method. If there's guns in the home, making sure they're locked up or taking them outside, have someone take them outside of the home. Um, assessing social supports, alerting your healthcare team what's just happened so they can uh, help out the next time they may come into another setting and referring them to appropriate resources. In the low risk situation, um, you can do something as simple as um, in the event that you develop suicidal feelings, here's what I want you to do. First, use the strategies for um, self-control that we've discussed, including seeking social support um, or different coping strategies. Then if those feelings remain, call and give them a specific uh, number, a suicide uh, hotline. If for whatever reason you're unable to access help or if you feel that things just won't wait, call 911 or uh, call or go to the emergency department. Here's the phone number. Um, and then document what you told the patient in your note and assess every visit after. Um, and then moderate risk um, involve, involve the family members um, to be aware, alert of uh, suicide at home, removing weapons. Um, families might want to dispense um, medications if there's a suicide risk. Ensure that they have mental health support. Um, make sure they know what the emergency or crisis service numbers are. And um, follow-up telephone contact has been shown to be really helpful. So you know, a couple days later, even a week later, give them a call and say, are, th are things better? You know, I know we prescribed an antidepressant or we referred you here, did that work out? Um, just so they know that someone's caring and watching out for them. And professional consultation, so talk to other people too about if you've done everything to cover your bases. 
severe risk um, immediate evalu evaluation for psychiatric hospitalization in the outpatient setting. Unfortunately, we have to call an ambulance. So um, one of the things we did recently, um, which I wish we wouldn't wouldn't have done in retrospect, is the ambulance came and they brought the um, stretcher in, and so the patient came from the room and then was sitting in the hallway on the stretcher while they were doing all the paperwork. So it would have been better for the person to remain in the room um, because there was some humiliation factor that went with sitting in the hallway on the stretcher. So just be aware of um, those things. Um, applying all moderate risk factors and then uh, document it, documenting um, those things. There's a move from uh, contracting. We used to rely on suicide contracting. Oh, the person told me they wouldn't commit suicide. I'm going to document that in my note, and that's okay. Um, that really has been shown to be pretty uh, non-effective. So what we are moving toward in mental health is safety planning. And safety planning is really taking all of these steps. If you're hearing things that are making you concerned for suicide, developing a, a safety plan with the patient here are all the things things that you can do to try to stay safe. Um, and then um, step five would be, you know, the last resort professionals and agencies to contact for help if they're not able to kind of get out of that frame of mind that they want to end their lives. And then keeping this in the chart um, and referring back to it. There's also a move towards the collaborative <coughs> assessment and management of suicide as a strategy. So once a person leaves the hospital, that's probably their highest risk period for suicide. So we want to get them immediately into some type of outpatient treatment setting. Um, and CAMS is really about working with the patient, um, not just on depression or anxiety, but all of the risk factors, risk and protective factors that go into why the person was feeling suicidal and addressing those things first as a symptom or problem in and of itself. Um, and these are the things to document in the medical record, so past and present physical and mental health diagnosis, past and present psychiatric treatment, um, suicidal ideation plan and intent. Uh, the potential lethality of the plan, um, have they made previous attempts, some of the risk and protective factors, what's your risk assessment, and then the plan based on your risk stratification. That's in the, um, all of those things are in the ideal world, but that's what they would be looking at in your chart documentation if you ever went to, uh, went to court related to somebody committing suicide. Um, these are some additional learning resources. So, um, trying to think, the American Association of Suicidology has some great uh, resources online. Um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They have a really fantastic website too um, to help find mental health services in every state. They list all of the community mental health organizations, the chemical de dependence treatment group. So that's a fantastic way to find um, treatment for your patient. And with that, we have covered anticipatory grief and depression. Um, we've talked about the assessment of depression and how that can be complicated in advanced disease. We talked about three psychotherapeutic treatments for major depression. So quick, quickly, anybody remember what those are? So what's the first? CBT. CBT. Interpersonal. Interpersonal. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy. And then we talked about some risk and protective uh, factors for uh, suicide risk management, stratification, and documentation. And that concludes this session. Any um, questions, thoughts, comments? No? Okay, great. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed. 
where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.